Good to be with you. You know, um, I think it was World War II. The Brits had a saying in England, keep calm and carry on. And we're carrying on here at Calvary, even though you can't come and join us in the congregation. We're carrying on with our normal weekend services, Saturday night at 6.30, 8 o'clock in the morning on Sunday, 9.45 and 11.30. We're able to, to broadcast to you at your normal times and beyond uh, through technology to other people. So we're glad you joined us. I'm praying every day for a swift end to this because it's hard as Christians not to be together. And so uh, we, we keep calm and we stay home and we carry on. But uh, we're glad that we can come this way. You know, I've talked to so many people or I've heard reports from so many different people that have indeed watched, tuned into these broadcasts, even people over a certain age, like over 70, they're, they're tuning in, they're watching uh, the live broadcast during the day. So uh, it seems that the technology is able to serve well. You know, it's, it, it, it happened at the right time in history, in the history of our country, to be able to do it this way. So we welcome you. And we're going to be doing a study in the book of First Peter. So if you have your Bible, get that ready and turn to First Peter chapter 1. It's a message that I'm calling, Why Should I Suffer? And you've noticed the last few Wednesdays and weekends that we've sort of honed in on this very prevalent theme and to, to derive comfort from what the scripture says about the issues we find ourselves in. But you know, about a month ago, no one ever heard of the term social distancing. That's sort of a new term. Um, now you see somebody on the street and you kind of back up if they get a little too close. We are so aware that's a new phenomenon. Not only social distancing is a new term, but the term quarantine is not a, a typical term in our culture. It was used in World War II for different reasons, but we haven't talked about quarantining for, for decades. But now we're all talking about infection rates. We're talking about asymptomatic transmission, symptomatic transmission. We're like, use, who are we? We're like using these terms. We've all become like little junior doctors, little experts on, on viruses and the spread of it in our community. Now, we know that this is serious, and we all are watching the rates every day worldwide in our country and our community. There are health issues. There are at-risk people. I've spoken to a few on the phone today. Uh, we know that this virus can cause respiratory distress. It can cause fever. It can cause a number of different things, but it can cause way more than that. There's the damage done to the human psyche in terms of fear and tension and anxiety. One medical journal I was reading said the psychological impact can be great resulting in a range of mental health issues from anxiety and anger to sleep disturbances, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Just this week, the World Health Organization put out guidelines on maintaining mental health. So they are aware, our professional community, that this is taking a toll on people psychologically. Now, Normally, if you've come here, you already know this. Normally, we teach verse by verse through the Bible. We go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, book by book often. 
Um, I just uh, finished a series on the book of Romans where we just sort of plowed through it. And yet we, we find ourselves at a very different time in history, and because of that, it needs to be addressed. And in the history of our church, we have done that from time to time, when there are circumstances that arise on our cultural horizon that need to be dealt with and framed biblically. We use that as an opportunity to do so. So the big one that sticks out in my mind was September 11, 2001. And that happened on a Tuesday, and we got together that evening, had a prayer meeting, had a meeting the next night in church, talked about it, derived comfort from the Psalms, talked about it on Sunday, talked about it for the next couple Sundays, because that was a threshold moment in our society. Then, not long after that, America went to war with Iraq. And so I use that as an opportunity to speak to the congregation about what the Bible says about going to war. And the just war. How can war be justified in view of the scripture? So we did that. Now, once again, we find ourselves confronted by a little microscopic virus. This insidious, unseen enemy that is attacking people, and in some cases, even taking their lives. It's also brought, for those of us who are not affected, confusion and questions. So, if you remember a few weeks ago on a weekend, and we were still meeting at the time, although it was very, very light in attendance because this thing started gaining traction. We ended the book of Romans, and we talked about how to treat your family. And we we used sort of this virus to speak about how to love your family, and as a family, how to love the community. Then the very first Wednesday night when we had to sort of just go live streaming and have no congregation, We selected the text out of Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus said, do not worry about your life. And we we addressed the issue of worry and anxiety head on. Then last weekend, both Saturday and Sunday, I gave you out of Psalm 27, sure steps in an uncertain world. Five places to put your spiritual feet to walk through a crisis, especially this one. And then just a few days ago on Wednesday evening, I talked about quarantining, and I sort of gave a biblical theology of isolation and quarantining. And uh, I've heard some really good reports just about that. But what I wanted to do for this weekend, for this Saturday and and this Sunday, is to look at 1 Peter, because um, it is really applicable to what we are all dealing with. Uh, Peter writes this letter to a group of Christians that are in five different places. So it's a general epistle, it's called. It's not running to one group in one city, but they are scattered abroad in five places that he mentioned. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So they have different circumstances in different places, but there's one common thread that bound them together. Suffering. All of them were suffering. That's apparent in the letter. If you know anything about First Peter or if you read it all the way through, he mentions suffering 15 times or more in this letter and he uses eight different Greek words to describe the kind of suffering that they were going through. Why? Because This is common to humanity. Um, Eliphaz, who was a friend, or at least an acquaintance of Job, 
uh, said that famous line, as surely as the sparks fly upward, man is born to trouble. So just like you light a fire and you can predict that those little tiny sparks are going to go up into the atmosphere, you can predict as soon as a person is born, that little girl or that little boy is going to face a lifetime of trouble. Man is born to trouble as certainly as the sparks fly upward. Now, most of those listening to this message will not get the coronavirus. That's just statistically proven. So maybe you can just go right about now. Because yes, it's prevalent. Yes, people are freaked out by it. But most people will not get it. But you might get anxiety. You might get distressed. You might get unemployed. That is, that is probably... Uh, the worst fear people have, um, even more so than getting this disease, is what this is doing to the economy. It is having a severe impact on global economy. A Harvard Business Review said, some fear a recession in the global economy may now be a foregone conclusion. In other words, you can just bank on it. It's going to happen. It's already happening. Now, there's another issue, and that is... Um, that is our knowledge and our media. Besides having our own pain, our own maybe unemployment, our own distress over this issue, we have something else. We have instant knowledge. We have the ability by media to find out what's going on in every city through media, even through social media, which adds to our difficulty. So it's enough to deal with our own trouble. Now we have to carry the trouble of everybody in the world along with us. And that's, that's burdensome, that's distressing, that's depressing for some people, especially if they're prone already to depression. You may recall that Jesus in the Gospel of Luke described the end of the age as being really, really bad, far worse than it is right now. Not that that's a consolation to anybody. But he talked about, he called it this, listen to the description, there will be distress of nations with perplexity. Distress of nations with perplexity. Now, I believe he is speaking about the Great Tribulation period, which we are not in. But certainly we can get a glimmer, a glimpse, and we can understand what that means just by what we're experiencing right now. Now, think back all the way back to the Old Testament. There's a guy named Solomon. Remember, Solomon tried all these things and he looked at life and he was kind of jaded by what he saw and he wrote his journal he got to a place as he looked around. This is just in his own little world, just in Jerusalem, just his own circumstances. He got to a place in looking at the troubles of life. He said, therefore, I hated life. Now, that's a guy with no media, no smartphone, no instant feed, no Twitter. This is him just looking around his own town in his own circle with his own circumstances. But... Jesus did promise in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Very interesting word, by the way, when Jesus said tribulation, it's the Greek word thlipsis, which means pressure or to push, to push down, to cause pressure. We experience all of us the pressures of life. Why? Why should I suffer? That's the question that I want to pose in this passage and in this message, why should I suffer? 
Now, Peter does write about suffering, and he uses a word trial or trials throughout this letter. So I'm going to take you down to uh, verse 6. Actually, in verse 2, he speaks about elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace uh, be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now that's a mouthful. Let me sum it up. He's saying the hope that we have is so alive because we know as we look to the future, it's going to end up in heaven where we live with him forever and ever. So between the time of our salvation at the beginning until heaven, we have another promise. We're going to be kept. He's going to keep us in his salvation. And that's a promise that God has made to us. Now on the, on the heels of that, he writes this two verses. We're going to look at verse six, first Peter chapter one in this, you greatly rejoice though. Now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Use the word trials, hardships, pressures, troubles, the pressures of this life. But did you notice in the same breath, he uses two words we, we rarely expect to find in the same sentence. Rejoice. Trials. In this, you greatly rejoice, even if for a while you've been grieved by various trials. Rejoice and trials in the same sentence? Usually, our joy is when the trial's over. That's when the joy comes. Our joy comes when the pressures are gone. We think of joy as a trouble-free life. But you don't get that picture when you read the pages of Scripture. He uses rejoice and trials in the same sentence. So I want to show you why. I'm going to tell you a few things about trials, and I know you will agree with them because I know this is your experience. First of all, trials are multiple. It's not one kind of trial. There are many kinds of trials. Uh, Some translations say all sorts of trials. So he says in this, verse 6, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by a variety of or various trials. If you happen to be reading from the old King James version, mine says various trials. The old King James version says a word we don't really talk about much these days, manifold. Unless you work on cars, you know what an exhaust manifold is or an intake manifold. But manifold is an old English word that means a bunch or a lot or various manifold trials or a variety of trials. The word in the Greek is poikilos, and it means many colored, many colored. So, so trials come in all shades. You have a little Pantone color chart and they come in, they come in all different colors. 
There's not just one or two. There's all sorts of different kinds of trial. One, one, one day might be a blue day. The next day you're feeling a little gray. You know, you have all sorts of different experiences in life. Some trials are big, some are small, some are short, some are prolonged like they never end. Some are personal, some are medical, some are relational, some are occupational, some are financial, and sometimes it's all the above. It just seems to cascade like... Man, I'm laid off because of this stupid coronavirus. I think I got coronavirus. Now I'm having problems with relationships because of the coronavirus. They just sort of pile up. The last few weeks, I have dealt with people who are diseased, unemployed, stressed, disabled, tearful, mournful, and joyful. All in in a few days period of time. So trials don't come in one shade. They come in many shades. Pain wears many faces. I suppose you could take trials and categorize them into three separate categories just for, just for the sake of study. I think you could divide them up and say there are physical trials, there are emotional trials, and there are spiritual trials. And the Bible speaks about all of them. So let's sort of go through them. There are physical trials. I'm speaking to people who have had or do have cancer, uh, who have dealt with a stroke, who've had a heart attack, who are raising a child with birth defects, uh, people get in traffic accidents. These are physical trials. The Bible speaks about these. Job not only had, um, well, he had, he had manifold trials, but he himself experienced the physical trial of having some sort of disease that rendered his body with boils on it. He's scraping himself. He's emaciated. His muscles are atrophying. Uh, He just went through trial after trial after trial, physical trials. The New Testament speaks about Simon, a leper, and other people who had leprosy, this loathsome disease that we spoke about Wednesday night. Paul the Apostle spoke about a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. And many people believe it was some sort of an eye disease, an eye affliction. So those are physical trials. The second category is there are emotional trials. And um, often it's because you've had a physical trial, so you feel emotionally sad because of it. The Bible's filled with things like the Psalms, where David and Korah and, and the writers of the Psalms use very deep emotional language as they express what they're going through in their own life. David even said, I make my bed swim with tears. Here's a guy who's just crying every day, every night, and he, he pictures it like I'm filling up the swimming pool. I, I swim in my tears. Godly people suffered physically and emotionally. Elijah, man of great miracles. But he was so depressed that he ran down into the Sinai Desert God started speaking to him, and he said to God, It is enough now, Lord. Take my life. I just want to die. Kill me now, God. That's how emotionally depressed he was. And know know this. Even the most godly, dedicated believers are susceptible to these kind of experiences, to emotional exhaustion and depression. Not just unbelievers. Some of the godliest people I know have suffered that way. 
The CDC, you all know what that is now. Maybe a month ago you didn't, but now you know the Center for Disease Control. They said 9% of adult Americans have feelings of hopelessness, despondency, and or guilt that generate a diagnosis of depression. And at any given time, 3% have a long-lasting and severe form of depression. You might say, well, that's worldly people. Not so. E. Stanley Jones, who was a great theologian, great writer, and a missionary to India, spoke about a pastor, a friend of his, who was preaching a series called um, How to Avoid a Nervous Breakdown. Before that preacher finished his series on how to avoid a nervous breakdown, he himself had a nervous breakdown. This happens to believers, godly believers, seasoned believers. So there are are physical trials, there are emotional trials, and there are spiritual trials. Maybe you can relate to agonizing over your own sin, or dealing with your own guilt, or wrestling with your own doubts, or having spiritual expectations that you feel are not being met. John the Baptist was one of those. He was in prison. He believed Jesus was the Messiah, but he did not see the results of that. He didn't see Jesus sort of take over the Roman government. So in doubt and confusion in his spiritual trial, he said, he sent a message to Christ saying, are you the one or should we look for another? Now, here's what I found. Frequently, a person who has one is dealing with all three. If a person is having a physical trial... They are or will be soon having an emotional trial and will soon have a spiritual trial because you're sick and then you you get sad because you're sick and then because you're sick and sad, you start doubting if you're even saved. So you, you find that because you're fearfully and wonderfully made and the way God has made us, you just really can't separate out all the time the physical from the emotional from the spiritual. So all you know is you're dealing with stuff. You're in the funk and you're deep in it and it hurts. So trials are multiple. Secondly, trials are painful. It's the word he used here, grieved, in verse 6. In this, you rejoice greatly, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Lupeo, the word grieved, it means distressed, made heavy. So the pressure is making you, you feel the weight of it. It's crushing you. You're you're feeling distressed. Trials are painful. This is the word used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when it says he was sorrowful and deeply distressed. Lupeo, same word. It's the same word used of sorrow at the death of a loved one. Remember when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and says, Um, I'm writing to you about those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow like those who have no hope. It's the same word. You're grieving over loss, the loss of a loved one. Now, grief is normal and healthy. It's normal and healthy for a person to grieve. It's a legitimate human emotion. And I need to underscore that because sometimes I meet these super spiritual Christians who think, well, I'm a Christian and my loved one went to heaven and I should rejoice. Yes, you should rejoice, but you should cry too. 
You should be grieved over that. There's deep emotional loss. And for you to try to bat it away or cover it up is unhealthy and makes the trial worse. Job suffered. And it says, no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Solomon in Ecclesiastes says there is a time to laugh, but there's also a time to weep. And when in the Hebrew culture, when somebody died, uh, the uh, allotted time of dealing with grief was 30 days of public demonstration of grief, a whole month. The Egyptians had 70 days of public demonstration of their grief. It's important. I, I meet people from different countries and they visit America and they sometimes visit American funerals and they'll say, you know, one of the oddest things I've noticed about the American culture is how, how you don't deal with grief, that you sort of are ashamed of showing emotion when, when you lose somebody. Other countries give full vent to their emotions. And I think from a biblical perspective, we, we should as well. So we learn a little bit about trials. I, I know we know it from personal experience, but trials are multiple, a bunch of different kinds. Every shade, every color come, to, come into your life. Trials are painful, but here's something else you may not know. Trials are needful. They're not optional. They're needful. You need them. He says in verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. Now watch this. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. The language indicates that there are special times that God knows that we need them. They're prescribed for us. It's like God goes, I know exactly what you need right now. You go, right, a million dollars, right? No, you need a trial. You need uh, a yellow trial or a blue trial or a gray trial or a red trial, different color for this period in your life. Why? Because God's going to use it for something. Philip Yancey, who wrote on suffering, one of the best books I ever read was by him on suffering. He said, if you pin them against the wall in a dark secret moment, many Christians would probably admit that pain was God's one mistake. He continues, he really should have worked a little harder and invented a better way of coping with the world's dangers, close quote. But the way Peter talks about suffering and trials, he speaks a lot about it, as I already noted. He often speaks about suffering in the will of God. That's the language he uses in, uh, in this book. In this letter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, Peter says, It is better if it's in the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. In chapter 4, verse 19, Let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good. Here's what it means. Whenever we suffer as a believer, there's a need in our life that is being met. We don't know it. We don't like it. But there's a need that's being met. You go, a need? Like what? Why do I need them? Well, let me give you a few reasons. And here's some benefits. Trials measure us. They measure our faith. If it's real, if it's authentic, or if it's fake. How do you know if, you're, how do you know if your faith is real? Test it. Verse 7 that the genuineness of your faith, though it is tested by 
fire. You know, a jeweler can always tell if gold is real or not. You know how? Fire it up. Put a fire under it. Heat it up. When you add heat to the gold, you can see if it's fake or if there's alloy in it or if it's pure. Same with faith. How do you know if the faith is real? Heat it up. Put a fire to it. Put a trial on it. You'll be able to see if it's real or not. Trials measure us. A faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. Real faith can stand the test. So he uses that language. Jesus spoke of faith being tested like a farmer throwing seed out in a field. Here's his analogy in uh, Matthew 13. Some of the seed fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, They withered away. Now, you all know that parable. You've read that parable, Matthew 13. The disciples came later and scratched their head and go, we don't get it. What do you mean by that? So he explains the parable. When he gets to that section, he says, he, he was speaking about he who has no root in himself and endures only for a while, but when trouble comes or tribulation arises or persecution arises, immediately he stumbles. I've watched people in crisis. I've watched myself in a crisis. Some people go through a time of fire in their lives and they're utterly consumed by it. And they get angry and they get bitter. I've watched other people go through fire and they improve. You know, they're not consumed by it. They're cultivated by it. They, they don't get bitter. They get better because of it. So, so trials do something for us. They measure us. They become the measure of our spiritual maturity. So they measure us. Second, they correct us. They correct us. My parents spanked me. Did your parents spank you? In Germany, did you guys believe in in that? Yeah, okay, of course. We all did, right? If you had good parents, they swatted you. And the reason they spanked you is because they wanted you to be changed. Because the trial, ouch, should change the behavior of a child. David even said in the Psalms, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. I could have said that to my mom and dad. Before your spanking, I went astray. But now I keep your word. That's what David said. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. C.S. Lewis put it this way. It's one of my favorite sayings of C.S. Lewis. Pain plants the flag of truth in the fortress of a rebel soul. Isn't that good? Come on, C.S. Lewis at his best. Pain plants the flag of truth in the fortress of a rebel soul. So, so we need trials. They measure us. They correct us. Third, they humble us. They humble us. Paul the apostle had four personal revelations from God where God actually appeared to him and spoke to him. And on one of those occasions, it says he was caught up to the third heaven. Now, that's pretty heady stuff. Well, what'd you do today, Paul? Oh, God just spoke to me audibly and took me to heaven. That's all. You know, I mean, come on. Who, who can say that? And so he wrote this. Lest I should be exalted above measure, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me. He said, I prayed three times for this, and God just kept saying, nope, nope, nope. Finally, he said, my grace is enough. Man, it's sufficient for you. And my strength will be, my power will be made perfect in your weakness. 
trials let us know that we are not in control. I was so in control before I had my surgeries recently. I planned my first surgery. I was kind of scheduling it. Okay, I'm going to get a surgery then. Then I'm going to recover. Then I'm going to be back in the pulpit. And then I'm going to go to Israel. I had it all planned out. God goes, yeah, no. You're going to do something different. You're going to have a surgery. Then get a hematoma. That's going to keep you from going to Israel. And so, so trials let you know. They humble you. They let you know you're not in control of nothing even though that's not good English. You're not in control of anything. God is in control. So they measure us, they correct us, they humble us. Let me give you a fourth benefit. They strengthen us. This is the good part. So this is why you need it. You need to be strengthened. In, uh, in James chapter 1, verse 2, he says, The testing of your faith produces patience. Better word, perseverance. You know, we all need a little perseverance about now in this coronavirus. You know, we've been quarantined in our homes. We've been looking at our wives and our kids. And, you know, we played all the games. We've watched all of Netflix, everything they've ever put out. You've all watched it all. Now what? You need perseverance. Can I give you a little perspective? During World War II, Anne Frank, who lived in Holland, she was quarantined because the Nazis were looking for Jewish people. She was with her family in a little space, 450 square feet for 791 days, 25 months. She was quarantined. That's perseverance. It's been a couple weeks for us, folks. Hang on. Keep calm and carry on. Trials do that. They measure us. They correct us. They humble us. They strengthen us. And... Here's another benefit. They equip us. What do I mean? Here's what I mean. You are never equipped to comfort a sufferer until you become one. You can't comfort somebody who's suffering unless you've suffered. Unless you've suffered successfully. Isn't that the meaning of 2 Corinthians chapter 1? He's the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort we have received. When a person has suffered and I'm suffering, find me that dude. I want to talk to him or her because they can speak into my life because they've gone through it. And so you are not equipped to speak to a suffering person unless you are or have become one who has suffered in the will of God. God's humbled you. God shaped you. God's worked in you. Now tell somebody about that. A.B. Simpson said, you will have no test of faith that will not fit you to be a blessing. I have never had a trial, but when I got out of a deep river, I found some poor pilgrim on the bank that I was able to help and by that very experience. So that's what trials do. Now, I know we're drilling down into these verses deeply, but trials are multiple, variegated, various, multicolored. Trials are painful. We get grieved by them, crushed by them, but they're needful because they produce us. They measure us. They correct us. They humble us. They strengthen us. They equip us for other sufferers. I want to close on this note. Not only are trials multiple and painful and needful, trials are remedial. That is, they refine us. Not only do they give those benefits that I just mentioned, they refine us. Listen to how he puts it. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. 
Here's the language that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is using specific language of an ancient goldsmith or a metallurgist. Uh, he's, He's using language of a smelting furnace. When they wanted to get impurities out, as I mentioned, they, they would heat these metals up. And it, the, the fire uh, not only tested them, but refined the metals. They could separate the impurities from the real deal. So trials refine us. They're remedial. They make us better people. They make us godly people, more equipped people, more fit people. Um, Job we've we've mentioned him and you really can't talk about trials without talking about Job because he's sort of the classic dude who lost his family, lost his income, all of it was taken away, lost his children, all of them. His wife said curse God and die. He worshiped the Lord, but he continued to suffer even after that. But to me the high point in the book is in the midst of all of his friends giving him bad counsel. He said this, I'm looking for God and I can't find God, but I can't see him, but he can see me. And he says, he knows the way that I take. And when I am tested, here's his language, I will come forth as gold. As gold. It's the same idea that Peter is bringing up here. So you're in the furnace. God sees you as precious. You're like gold to him. He's refining you. He's purifying you. God is not out to burn you or blast you. He's out to bless you. You go, it doesn't feel like it. That's because the blessings are disguised as burdens. Yeah, they look bad. Yes, they hurt. Yes, you are grieved by them. But you know, I've noticed, I, I, I made toast today for breakfast, an English muffin. And um, I, I know the setting to make English muffin perfect. It's about five and a half, almost six on my toaster. Now, What I've noticed about toasters is they have all different kinds of settings. If you want, you can turn it all the way to 10 and get burnt toast. Nobody in their sane mind wants to eat burnt toast. There's a few people who who do that, but they're not sane. So, but you can do that. Okay. God never turns the toaster up to 10 in your life. He doesn't do it so that you are burnt and wasted and of no value. As Warren Wiersbe put it, when God permits his children to go through the furnace, he keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. He knows just what you need and how much. He doesn't walk away and go, oh, I forgot Skip. He's burning up. No, he knows exactly how long I need to be in that furnace. Let me let you in on a little ancient secret. The, um, The ancient goldsmiths had a method to measure the purity of the gold. They knew it when it was perfectly refined. They would look down into the ladle at the pool of melted gold because the purer it got, the shinier it got on the surface. They know it was pure enough to remove it from the fire when they could look down and see their reflection in it. So here's the application. God wants to look at you and see the image of Jesus. If the image of Jesus isn't there, guess what? A little more heat, a little more time, a little more trial, a little more pain. But that's his goal. That is his goal. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, we are predestined to be conformed 
to the image of his son. God is committed to that in your life. Now, I mentioned that the word various means many colored or variegated, many colored, right? It is that word poikilos, manifold. Uh, that word is used one other time. I'm closing now. One other time in 1 Peter, and that's 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. This is what it says. I'll read it to you. As each one of us has received a gift, minister that gift to one another as good stewards of the manifold, poikilos, manifold grace of God. So two times he uses the word poikilos, manifold. Manifold trials, manifold grace. You have manifold trials, you will have manifold grace shown you. For every color you have of trial in your life, God has a color to match your trial. It's not like when you go to the store and you, you say, hey, uh, can you match this paint? And they have every color conceivable except your color. God has your color. Whatever trial you are presenting him with, he has the perfect shade of grace to give to you. There was a young woman who was going through uh, manifold trials. She was having a conversation with her mother. She said, Mom, life is hard. I'm tired of trying. I want to give up. Her mother was listening, and she took three pots of water and heated them all up on the stove, filled them up, brought them to a boil. In one pot, she put carrots. In another pot, she put an egg. In a third pot, she put coffee, coffee grounds. She let them boil for 20 minutes. At the end, she uh, pulled out the carrots, and um, uh, the carrots were soft by that time. The egg was hard by that time. And then she poured the coffee and had a sip of it. And her daughter's watching, thinking, you're making dinner, but it's weird. And so mom explained. She said, each of these Three items faced the same adversity of the boiling water, but they all reacted differently. The carrot went in hard and strong and came out weak and soft. The egg went in fragile but came out hardened. And then she said, but the coffee changed the water. And she said, sweetheart, you have to decide which one of those you're going to be. Which are you going to be? Do trials weaken you and wilt you? Do they stiffen your spirit and harden your heart? Or when things get really heated up, do you release a fragrance and a flavor where people go, wow, that person's better than they were before. So let me close by just encouraging you. Stop telling God how big your trouble is. And start telling your trouble how big your God is. God can do something through you in this time you've never imagined. It's a good time we're in. God's going to make his people better because of it, I trust. And I pray like coffee will bless others. I love a good cup of coffee in the morning. Speaking about how big God is, God is big enough, if you're not a believer right now, to save you now, right now, to forgive you of your sins right now, to give you eternal life. God loves you, has a plan for your life. And maybe this trial of coronavirus has got you thinking about your life eternally. Good. And wherever you are, if you're, if you're watching this, if you're listening to this, and you haven't really trusted in Jesus, maybe you've trusted religion or your own goodness, I'm going to give you an opportunity to come to know the, 
God of the Bible and have him change your heart, change your life, and you'll see him working in your life in a whole different way. So if you're watching uh, by YouTube or by the website or on your device or you're watching in a little watch party, whatever it might be, if you don't know Christ, ask him into your heart. Say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I admit that. And I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Wash me, cleanse me. I turn from my sin. I turn from my past. I turn to Jesus as my Savior and Lord. I believe he came to this earth. He died on a cross for my sin, shed his blood. And that blood was sufficient to cleanse me even now. And that he also raised from the dead. I trust in him. I turn to him. I want to follow him today and every day. Change me forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you did pray that prayer, we're going to give you an opportunity to make contact with us. We want to make contact with you and explain what to do next. But if you ask Jesus into your life, that simple act of faith, you are on your way to heaven. You're saved. And uh, you're going to find your life different in the days, weeks, and months ahead. We're going to describe what to do next. But let's, if you're wherever you are, if you can, stand with us uh, to honor the Lord, and we'll close out in worship.